Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever wondered what happens to your brain as you get older, specifically after the age of 40? Well, science and research shows there is some rewiring taking place. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that is Ross Pomeroy, editor at Real Clear Science and contributor to Big Think. Ross, thank you so much for being with us. Morning, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Such interesting research because I think a lot of people do wonder what is happening to the brain as we get older. What have you been reporting on or talking about when it comes to rewiring? Well, yeah, it's a little different for everybody, but over time, the brain's going to change just like every other part of the body. And the scientists uh, of the study looked at over 144 studies conducted over the past few decades which looked at uh, brain scans. So brain scan technology has been advancing uh, a a lot over the last few decades. So we could see how the brain's connected, what lights up onto the scanner. And these studies are showing that, yeah, uh, around uh, age 40, there's a general trend that the brain's connectivity suddenly starts to change. And when you say the brain's connectivity uh, starts to change, so what actually is changing and and what, what differences are they seeing in the brain? So it's actually tough to know that because these scanners really just see like really what what part what neurons are lighting up, where's the activity doing. But uh, the brain is really very much a black box. But we can say is that certain areas of the brain uh, they can be very connected at younger uh, ages. So usually this is a time when there's you know we're learning things, we're learning special skills, and then over time, as the brain changes, this connectivity starts to go instead of being within certain regions, it's connected globally across the brain. So one area of the brain on one side is connected to talking to each other globally versus just in those very specific regions. Interesting. And I know the study as well looked at when you talk about that connectivity and, and when we're much younger and, and, and kids like learning, like you said, kind of learning basic things and then moving on and changing your thinking process. I wonder, did the studies or, or do we know how much the studies also took into account life experience? I mean, whether you're an athlete or whether you've you've been through different life experiences and if that might have some other impact on, on your brain and brain network working? Uh, they did. This was what was called a systematic review. So again, like a lot of these brain scan studies are looking at all kinds of different things for whatever purpose. And these researchers just gathered all this data, 10,000 subjects, and then looked at the brain scans, you know, see, see how they changed over time. So, and again, what they really notice is just in that uh, around the fifth decade of life, 40s to 50s, that's when this connectivity really starts to change. Hmm. But they didn't get into that specific that you're asking about, though. Right, right. But they did, I, 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 from looking at, at your work and, uh, and the article on this, I, I found it really interesting that they talked about the brain being a, a resource-hungry organ, that, that it needs, uh, we, we often talk about brain food, uh, you know, this kind of looks at that and exactly what the brain needs kind of for good function. Yeah, so the brain is the most resource-hungry organ in our body. Uh, though it takes up to about 2% of our mass, it takes up about 20% of our metabolism. It's a pretty pretty incredible hungry organ. Um, so yeah, but uh, as we do get older, um, you know, brain hardware, pretty much every part of our body starts to age. Um, certain parts of the brain shrink. In certain regions, communication between neurons is less effective. Brain flow in the brain decreases, or excuse me, blood flow in the brain decreases, there's more inflammation. And then at the same time, it's getting less energy due to slower metabolism. So these researchers are thinking that potentially this this change in connectivity, this 
this uh, more global connectedness versus more specific connectedness is because the brain is trying to be more efficient with the limited resources it's getting. Can you make the connection then, and I, I know that, that this was again looking at those scans, but I wonder if then that leads to more study that the brain changes because of the need for, for resources and because of the changes as we get older. I wonder if then the, the, the obvious path to take is finding ways to maybe keep the brain from changing. If you feed the brain better, if you do things that are, that are appreciated by the brain, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't deteriorate or we don't see changes that might be negative. Absolutely, yes. So for while this general trend starts around age 40, this this rewiring, so to speak, um, if you do things that keep your body and your brain, you know, younger, healthier, this networking, uh, this re-networking might not occur till say age 60. So, you know, and these are these are things that, you know, we all know about diet, exercise, don't drink, don't smoke, uh, those specifically as uh, those sorts of activities and those sorts of lifestyle factors will keep the brain much healthier longer. And when you talk as well about the the university team that looked at the 144 studies, were they were they random studies or the imaging? Were they images that had already been taken and they were looking at those, or did they specifically go out and do imaging or or work from from certain types of images that were available? Yep, they looked at the uh, exactly the types of images that were already available. So again, uh, functional MRI and brain scans once they came onto the scene a few decades ago have just you know exploded in popularity. Uh, researchers will look at almost you know anything and then you know show people prompts and see oh what parts of the brain are lighting up. But yeah, thanks to all these studies, we have uh, all kinds of brain scans from people at different ages. So this is how gathering all those imaging and those scans was how they were able to notice this uh, generalized trend. Again, the rewiring after age 40. And and I, I found it really interesting that, it, that 40 was the age for the rewiring. But did it look as well then from, say, 40 when that rewiring starts to then what the brain looks like? Were there scans from people, say, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s? Oh, sure. There were scans all across the spectrum. I believe it was from, you know, pretty much any adulthood, uh, anytime an adult, 18 to 80. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, but it's, it's a general trend again. So it's not just going to be specifically age 40. It's, it's going to be different for everybody. Everybody's brain is different. And is the research continuing or do you think does this kind of open the door again? So we found this out, been able to pinpoint that that change happens around 40s or or around the age of 40. Like you said, though, different for for people, but generally speaking around 40. Uh, Does that lead then to other research, seeing what other changes take place in the brain and and maybe ways to, again, uh, learn better? We know those kind of common sense things to to keep our brain healthy, but maybe there are other things that we haven't discovered yet. Oh, sure. All the time. I mean, neuroscience is one of the still one of the most hottest fields in science. So there's going to be some cool studies coming out all the time. There was just one a couple days ago, which, you know, evolutionary, we were looking, they were looking at why uh, humans, what was the advent of human intelligence? Was it really more brain size was just because our brains are bigger, more neurons, or was it because it's uh, connectivity? And this study actually showed that it's more not necessarily how the human brain is, how big it is, how many neurons we have, but how it's connected. And that's kind of a new fascinating area of research because uh, as cool as brain scans are and functional MRI, they still are essentially just showing what's lighting up in the brain. And what we really don't know is is how exactly they're connected. But uh, that's something that's going to be going forward, I'm sure, in the future. Fascinating research at our brains and what's happening in there. Ross, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with the view from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. And as expected, the Premier with the new St. Paul's Hospital site in the background was asked not about, well, some, some, a bit about healthcare, but also about the park board. Yeah, in fact, he, <laughs> we thought he might come prepared for questions on that. And in fact, he opened his uh, news conference and speech yesterday with a joke. He mm-hmm. said, uh, we're here to talk about an issue that's front of mind for British Columbians, the fate of the Vancouver Park Board. Mm-hmm. And then he said, just kidding, I hope. But it was the first question. And the premier was prepared. He gave a very 
cautious answer, aware that the city council in Vancouver had at 10 p.m. on Wednesday night or <clears throat> voted to ask the provincial government to give it the power to wipe out the Vancouver Park Board, the elected one. Uh, Premier said, now that sort of tossed the ball into the government's court, uh, the request to the province to change the law. Eby tossed the ball right back. He said that the province is looking forward to receiving a transition plan from the city of Vancouver for how it actually intends to manage this transition. And he also said what has to be in that plan. And the first thing he said the city needs to do is to explain how it is going to consult Indigenous people, the Indigenous nations on whom the city of Vancouver occupies their traditional territory. He also said, it's an NDP government, right? They want to see a plan for how uh, the, the city is going to deal with the employees of the park board. What's going to happen to them? And the last thing he said was he needs to see what the city is going to do about the parks and the park facilities. Uh, there's been some suggestion that because a significant number of Vancouver city parks are actually, quote, marks temporary, um, their fate may change. So I took that as a very cautious response from the premier and also telling Mayor Sim and his council what they have to do before the provincial government will lift a finger to help them. Uh, the word, uh, I'm sure a lot of people saw that uh, that one line, provide the province with the transition plan, and thought, hmm, where have we heard that before? Yeah, yes, no, in Surrey. True. Yeah, no, it's funny. And of course, everybody went, oh, God, here we go, Surrey again. And the premier, that's the other thing on which the premier was prepared. He rejected any comparison <laughs> to this situation and Surrey. No wonder the New Democrats wish they'd never gone down that role. So he said, no, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> people are not going to mistake the challenge of who responds when you dial 911 and which police force responds. They're not going to mistake that with a discussion between the province and the city over the fate of an elected park board. Well, he hopes that we won't get there. But, you know, again, I see saw quickly overnight uh, some suggestion, I guess, from Ken Sim supporters that the province has approved this in principle. I don't see that at all. I see the provincial government laying down some conditions that the mayor and council have to meet before the province will do anything. And that really matters, Jill, because of the mechanics of the way the legislature works. So, the House sits on the 20th of February, and there'll be a budget and a throne speech, and it'll be an election budget. You may recall that when the legislature sat this year early, it had very little to do for two weeks. That is because the EB agenda was held up in the legislature drafting committee. So there's a committee of the House that oversees the drafting, a government that oversees the drafting of legislation, and it has a staff of people who were in charge of writing legislation, and it's complicated. So they had trouble getting Eby's agenda ready for this year's session because it takes a while and there was a shortage of drafting team. So just imagine where the city of Vancouver's request for legislation is going to be on the EB agenda for the spring session of the legislature when he's got an election to fight later in the year. He's got his own agenda and he's already told the city of Vancouver what they have to deliver before the government will even look at the request. So the, the onus is really back on Ken Sim and the city. We'll now find out how well prepared Mayor Ken Sim and his council majority were for this, because I think the message coming from the New Democrats is, we're not gonna reject this, but we're not gonna do it or make it a priority until you've told us, until you've met all these tests we've laid down for a transition plan.
Right. And I was thinking that too. When were they expecting this? Because it doesn't seem like they have a lot of answers, Ken, Ken Sim and the team, when people have been asking about this. So were they expecting that they'd be asked for a transition plan? How long is it going to take them to put it together? And, and what's that going to look yeah. like? Yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, I was surprised on the Indigenous thing. Obviously, some of the critics of what the city's planning to do have raised this issue, which is we're in an era where our public institutions in British Columbia have pledged to live up to the standards of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And one of the central issues there is consult and accommodate First Nations before you take action. So that's a very important pushback from the premier. He's reminding the mayor, this is an UNDRIP province and you want the provincial government to do something, you better be able to come to the province and say, hey, we've dealt with the First Nations. We've got them on side for what we're doing here. Uh, you've raised an interesting issue, Jill, to me. How much preparation and how much work did Ken Sim and his council majority put into this issue before Sim announced what he was going to do? It seemed to me that it came out of the blue. He's been unable so far to explain where his claim, the millions of dollars in savings of this plan will come from. It looked to me like he didn't have everything ready to go with the provincial government either, but He's got some time to do that, although again, as I say, it takes the province a while to draft legislation, get it into the House, and you have to persuade the New Democrats in an election year that your legislation should take precedence over the rest of the agenda for a spring session of the legislature, Jill, that as we discussed yesterday, the New Democrats have shortened it to 10 weeks from 12 weeks. They're going to use up a lot of the time in that session. They have to pass a budget, pass legislation. I don't know how much time they're going to have to deal with Ken Sims' priority. Continuing now with Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, it seems like every day we are hearing heartbreaking stories of people who need cancer treatment, who are making very difficult decisions, who aren't getting the care they need in a timely fashion. And I know that came up yesterday as well. Yeah, it did with the premier yesterday. It was a healthcare announcement. He was touring the new St. Paul's Hospital that's under construction. Um, you know, I, I would say one of the big changes in the healthcare story here in BC, when we used to talk, Jill, about wait times for healthcare, we tended to be talking about waiting, you know, hip and knee replacements. I've been on one of those waiting lists, and it's no fun waiting for a knee replacement, but uh, it's not life-threatening usually either. And, and we're not talking about waiting time for cancer treatment. It's a, it's a whole new level of discussion. British Columbia was always proud of leading the country in cancer treatment and response time. And yeah, you might be waiting for a new hip, but you weren't going to be waiting for cancer care. Now we're hearing it. And it is life and death. And the stories that are compiling up are of people who've made some very difficult decisions. They can't wait They've gone elsewhere, people who've paid a small fortune to get treatment in another country or another province. We've had one, uh, it's just a heartrending story of somebody who got told, um, why don't you consider medically assisted dying? And we've had one woman who did take that option. And uh, my colleague, Katie DeRose, has been doing some of the stories for The Sun. And I know there's been lots of coverage in other media as well. But Katie said the other day that she's done three stories. And every time she does a story, Jill, about these horror stories of waiting for cancer treatment, she hears another example. People call her up and say, well, what about my case? Um, these are horrible stories. They're sobering. And they're a real challenge to the New Democrats. Uh, the issue got raised with the Premier yesterday, and he said um, he's not satisfied with BC's performance on dealing with cancer. He says there's been a spike in an aging population and a big spike in the number of people seeking treatment. And there's waiting lists and all that. But, you know, he says he's not satisfied. And... Uh, unacceptable is one of David Eby's most common words when he responds to areas where his government hasn't lived up to its promises yet. 
I don't know how much patience the public has with the premier on this one. You know, he pointed to the hospital under construction behind him. Uh, he has the same stats that Adrian Dix does about all the doctors they've hired and all the <clears throat> nurses and people they've recruited. But, you know, the stats are one thing. The photo ops are one thing. But, Jill, the anecdotes on this are what I think is increasingly plaguing the government. You don't need to hear very many of these horror stories before you go. These guys have been government for eight years. What are they doing about it? Yeah, and I, I think, uh, like you said, and, and uh, your colleague, Katie DeRosa, we are just going to hear, not just, but we are going to be hearing more and more of these stories yeah. because people are sharing them because, uh, yeah, it is unacceptable, but uh, people want answers, I think, and want to, to find out what else is being done. Well, yeah, and, and, I mean, the, the awful thing about the this is unacceptable is the government's actually accepting it. Right. They're they're saying that the public health care system is the answer. They're saying they've hired 40,000 health care workers. They've said they increased the budget to record amounts. They're doing everything they can. And these problems can't be solved overnight. All of that is true. But I think the question is how much public patience is there for this? Um, as I said, the government's been in power for eight years. Now, you know, look to the opposition. What are their solutions? Uh, that's a challenge as well. But I just I just think this storyline is taking over because, I mean, I was surprised. I, I began to realize how bad this was when the New Democrats started sending patients to Bellingham. Like mm. any acknowledgement that the American health care system has anything to offer Canada flies in the face of NDP rhetoric. You know, they've always, always, always opposed any reforms of the healthcare system where they could say, well, that would just Americanize the system. Now the BC government is paying for care in Bellingham, paying for people to travel there, paying for them to take caregivers with them. Um, you know, and, and, and the take up on that wasn't as big as they expected, but it still tells me that this has reached a level of crisis where even privately, at least, the New Democrats are rethinking some of their rhetoric about how to fix the healthcare system. It is certainly something that we will continue talking about. On that note, though, Vaughn, we're out of time. Great chatting with you. And Simi is back yeah. on Monday. Yeah. And Jill, just a pleasure working with you. Uh, looking forward to Simi coming back. But it's uh, been, I hate to say it because it's news we're doing, but uh, it's also been a pleasure working with you. It's a lot of fun. And you as well. Vaughn, thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for the weekly check-in with Washington correspondent for Global News, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning. Lots to get to today. Let's start with a potential impeachment of Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, look, this is something that was spearheaded by the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, when he was still in his kind of bit of power. And it was carried through uh, earlier this week when the there was a, a vote put to the floor of the House. It fell completely along party lines, 221 to 212. But Republicans essentially saying, look, we don't know if there's enough evidence here as of yet to, to do anything, but the inquiry is going to give us more power to be able to subpoena people and to get more documents and information. The question here is, you know, is this going to be an overreach? Is this going to be kind of that quote unquote nothing burger here? Because up until now, Republicans haven't put any evidence forward. And there's some skeptical Republicans in the Senate that say, look, you know, if this goes south and goes sour, this could be problematic for us into an election year. So it seems like the, even though this is going ahead and this is happening, it seems like any kind of if you this idea of removing Joe Biden from office seems pretty improbable at this point. Probably um, not going to happen. I mean, it's just an inquiry. It's not something that, you know, they're bringing to a full vote to, to charge him with articles of impeachment. And look, they're, they're trying to use this impeachment to go after Joe Biden in a roundabout way for their investigations into his son, Hunter Biden. Um, and, and realistically, what they're looking at are allegations that are tied to when Joe Biden was either A, a private citizen or B, the vice president of the United States pre-2016. And presidential historians have come out to say, look, you know, impeachment is, is supposed to be the strongest element that, that you can use to remove somebody who's committed 
a high crime or misdemeanor. And, you know, if they're going after somebody for something that's not happening while they're actually president, you know, what does that turn impeachment into? Does this just become kind of a political game every time a new president is put in power? So there's questions here over whether or not, you know, impeachment is going to become just another, you know, weaponized piece of of politics um, that either party can use. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening with Donald Trump as well and a temporary pause in the interference trial. Yeah, and so this is due to the uh, the, the case in Washington D.C. looking into his you know efforts to overturn the 2020 election, um, and he appealed uh, one of the the rulings of Tanya Chutkin in Washington. And essentially, with Jack Smith saying, "Look, you know, if this is going to be appealed, we want to go to the appellate court and and fast track this, while also bringing it to the Supreme Court to see if Donald Trump actually has some kind of immunity." The judge in Washington said, "Well, if this is going to be going through, we're going to pause things. You know, that could." potentially put the March trial date in jeopardy here. But with the appeals court fast tracking it, with the Supreme Court potentially fast tracking it, you know, this could wind up back in the in in the judge's hands in Washington to allow this to go forward. The big question, though, Jill, is if the Supreme Court ultimately takes this case that's been paused and says, look, Donald Trump had immunity. Does that kill this case? Does that kill the case in Georgia with Fonnie Willis? And does this kind of rev up? Trump loyalists and Trump himself to say, look, the courts have been coming after me and I was the winner all along. Hmm. And so with the pause, then is it potentially could it keep getting delayed or is this something that, yes, there's this delay and then it it will likely move forward? Well, so it'll depend on what the answer is. The delay, at least at the appellant court in Washington, D.C., will only run through the end of December because they've decided to fast track and they need responses from both sides by the end of December. The Supreme Court, they could obviously take their time. You know, the, the three it's a conservative leaning court. Three of the judges were put in place by Donald Trump. We don't know how they're going to to, to ultimately rule. Um, you know, because this is going to be a, a significant decision that will have long lasting impacts well beyond, um, you know, whatever happens with this election and Donald Trump going forward. So it's paused for now. It just depends on what happens when the lower court sends its decision back. Does that happen to speed up the Supreme Court more or does it send it back to Washington and the March trial goes forward? All right. And kind of related to that as well, looking at the potential of charges all related to January 6th, could we see a reversal there? It's possible. I mean, look, there are, you know, there have been more than a thousand uh, charges laid in this. Some of the people who have been charged, particularly with obstruction, they are now going to have a, a case here heard potentially by the Supreme Court that could overturn some of those obstruction charges. And what does that do? Well, I mean, it obviously vacates um, you know, the potential legal risks that some of these people are facing, but it also has implications into Donald Trump because one of the charges against him is obstruction uh, for, for trying to stop the, uh, the, the counting the, uh, of the votes uh, in the Senate. So if the Supreme Court ultimately hands some of these people who have been charged with attacking the Capitol uh, an ability to be overturned, that again puts, you know, a, a bit of an uphill climb for the special counsel who's investigating Donald Trump because the Supreme Court will have made a decision. There are people who are criticizing, saying, look, people took part in this attack at the Capitol. There needs to be consequences for it. But again, you know, this has been a highly politicized um, kind of incident that is now, you know, going going to going to find itself against the Supreme Court where, you know, a decision is going to have big impacts. And another story that is making a, a lot of headlines in the United States and this one coming also a Supreme Court, this one in Texas, though, and uh, denying a request for an abortion. Yeah, so Supreme Court ultimately is going to um, review a lower court decision uh, over the abortion pill Mifepristone. And essentially the lower court is trying to block it and say that it should not be made accessible to Americans, which it is right now through the mail, which is especially helpful to people who are in states where abortion is highly restricted. Um, and the question here is, will the Supreme Court side with the lower court here um, and put more restrictions in place for uh, use and accessibility of the pill Mifepristone, which is one of two pills used for um, a medication uh, abortion? Abortion rights activists say the Supreme Court needs to stay out of this. They need to allow for um, a woman and women's health uh, to be you know, handled by that person and their doctor. The concern here is if the Supreme Court moves in the same way that they did with uh, with Roe uh, by overturning Roe, that this could further 
uh, put more stress on uh, the ability for a woman to be able to access an abortion. If that also were to happen, it would be in the middle of an election year. It would likely fire up Democrats. We saw what happened uh, during the midterms with, with abortion being such a huge part of the campaign. This could be, whatever the Supreme Court decides, either a gift for uh, people who are trying to protect abortion rights or for the Democrats. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, Reggie. A lot to talk about. A uh, lot's happening in the United States. But thank you so much. Great to check in with you this morning. Thanks. Happy Friday. This is Mornings with Simi. If you have been following along, you know that Vancouver City Council has voted in favour of abolishing the city's elected park board, has asked for the province to get involved and to grant them the powers to do that, a move the mayor says would save millions, although we've not been able to see exactly where those savings come from, also says though would cut down on bureaucracy and redundancy when it comes to getting things done. We've also heard from the province now saying, well, hold on a sec, if you want this to happen. You need to come back and give us a transition plan. You need to tell us how this is going to work and you need to consult with Indigenous people as well. So what happens from this point on and what are we looking at when we look at this process? Hamish Telford is joining us now, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Hamish, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. You're welcome, Jill. How do you see this playing out, given what we know so far and this relationship between a civic government and the province? Oh, boy, it's really hard to say. Um, I can't really comment on the merits of the proposal. As you just mentioned, I don't think we have that information yet to, to really assess whether or not this is a good idea. Uh, but I do have concerns and reservations about the process, right? This was not something that ABC and Ken Sim ran on in the last election. And they are proposing a major change, not just to the Vancouver Charter, which governs the city, but a major change to the city's democratic architecture. And, and seemingly with little consultation, um, and, and, uh, and I, I think the province is going to, um, to be, have reservations about this process as well. Given that it wasn't an issue in the last election campaign, we could well see it becoming an issue in the next election campaign. I'm, I'm having shades of the Surrey police transition going on here where someone takes the opposite point and says, actually, we want to go back. And I'm, I'm sure the province uh, doesn't want to sort of move through with displacing the park board and then having the next city council saying we want it back. So I, I, I think a lot of reservations about this process. And the um, public safety minister and the, the premier both said we don't want to make the that comparison saying, and, and Von Palmer mentioned this earlier today, that a police force when we're talking about public safety is very different than a, a an elected park board, but I get what you're saying in that it is a major decision and and people are, it's a very divisive one as well. Do you think, could the province come back or is this something where they could be, the city could be ordered or it would make sense to either put it to a, a freestanding referendum or make it part of the next civic election? Uh, yes, I think it needs to have happen. Um, and you know, if we make it part of the next um, city election, then uh, eliminating the park board gets pushed way out into the future, uh, because if it's defeated in that referendum, or even if it even if it's victorious, you've still got an elected park board <laughs> again. Um, so you're going to elect a park board and then immediately dismantle it. Um, but a referendum in advance of the next election, I think, would. Um, uh, give us a strong indication of whether or not this is supported by by the city and people would have the opportunity to think about this issue in isolation. All of the information could be put on the table and people would be voting on this irrespective of all the other issues that go on in a in a general election. And do you think that it's also kind of a lack of information, like like you said, and you said, so we've been told that it's going to save millions, but when pressed on that, there aren't actual numbers that are being put forward to show exactly where. I know the province also said, well, you also need to have this transition plan that says what's going to happen to all of the employees of the park board and what's the future, and that uh, the, the, the line as well that says you must consult with First Nations. Does it seem like the city has a lot more work to to do here? I think there's a ton of work to do. Um, if, as I say, this seems to have come out of the blue. There hasn't been, a, 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 to my knowledge at least, a committee studying this, uh, doing public hearings. Um, 
the idea was floated. They had one city council meeting, 100 speakers spoke, and then they voted to do it. Um, that, that, that seems to me to be a wholly inadequate process for something that is this significant. And because it's the only city with a park board, is it, does that make it uh, easier or more difficult given that? I mean, and that's also the argument that can be used on why we should keep the park board and why we should get rid of it. So does it make it because it's kind of an outlier? Does that bring a whole new layer to it? Well, it would certainly, if it was eliminated, bring um, Vancouver into line with other cities in B.C. and across the country. On the other hand, um, cities have complained for well over a decade uh, that they have had so much work downloaded on them from provinces. um, And here's uh, this would tremendously increase um, the amount of work that would be done by city council. Um, So, again, I think that has to be part of the transition plan, not only what's going to happen to the park board employees, but what happens to how does city manage uh, such an additional um, workload uh, to all the other things that they have to do. And it almost feels as well like getting lost all in all of this is the parks in that we're talking about employees and these things are important too. And we're talking about the democratic process, very important. But really, when it gets right down to it, we're talking about green, spite, green space and making sure it's maintained and looked after and it's, and it's done in, in the right way. Absolutely. And we've had for well over 100 years a park board in Vancouver dedicated to looking after the city's parks and... Um, that that's a huge portion, a part of the city. Of course, Stanley Park is is the jewel of Vancouver. Um, and so there has been an elected body dedicated to that very task. And, and we are proposing now, the city is now proposing to eliminate that. And, and you know, I, again, I'm not in a position to, to assess, say it's a bad idea or a good idea. I just think it needs a lot more study and public consultation. All right. Hamish Telford, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are looking at a story now that still has many questions, and it all has to do with a man by the name of Dan Alder. He lost his life. This happened while he was working on a crane at Delta Port one year ago. He suffered a medical emergency, and there are many questions about how things unfolded that day and the circumstances leading up to what happened. Well, joining me on the line to talk more about this is Zach Vasera, labor reporter for the TAI. Zach, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you have been reporting on this, and I know you have been talking with the family of Dan Alder. Can you just take us back a bit and explain what we know about what happened that day? On December 14th, 2022, Dan Alder was working his job as a mechanic at Delta Port. That's a massive container terminal near to Watson, if you don't know it. Uh, Dan was working maintenance there and was repairing a part of a gantry crane. And while he was doing this work, he was 150 feet above the ground. That's 23 flights of stairs. While he was working, he suffered a medical emergency and collapsed. First responders rushed to the scene but weren't able to reach Alder quickly because the elevator on that gantry crane was broken that day. For the same reasons, his colleagues could not transport him to the ground. They actually had to put him on a floating platform in the air and essentially improvise a way to lower him several meters through the air so that a firefighter on a cherry picker could pick him up and bring him down to the ambulance. Unfortunately, Dan passed away on the scene. Now, when you hear that story told that way, your first impression is that this is a horrific, terrible accident. But after some reporting, we found that the elevators on these Ganja cranes were frequently broken and that this was a safety problem often raised by employees there who worried about medical emergencies, uh, what would happen in the event of a medical emergency if someone was stuck up there. Um, we learned later that an inspector then looked at the worksite, came and visited, and determined that there were six violations of Canada's safety laws. They found that Delta Port did not have an emergency response plan to get people off of those cranes and found that they had failed to actually assess the danger of working on those cranes particularly when the elevators were not working. And that's essentially how Dan Alder came to pass away. Uh, so do we know then, with, with the finding of those six safety violations and the issues with the elevators not working, is it something that Delta Port has addressed, or have they given you any information or any response to, to whether or not they knew about this or there were plans they were trying to fix it? 
Delta Port has acknowledged uh, Alder's death. Delta Port has said that they had launched their own internal investigation to look into the matter. Um, but beyond that, they have told me very, very little. We know that a federal investigation into this does continue after that initial inspection found those violations. There's no timeline on when that federal investigation may conclude. But it's potential, there's a potential that if they find negligence on the part of Delta Port, they could force the company to pay a fine and even recommend criminal charges, something that is fairly rare in Canada but does occur. But does occur. Now, I know you've been speaking as well with uh, Dan Alder's uh, family and some of their concerns. And the fact, too, that that from reading your work on this, they felt pretty left out about uh, not only the investigation, but also kind of getting details on what happened. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more than left out. Uh, the family was obviously devastated by Dan's passing. He was a very loved man, a very generous, kind man. Um, and after he died, the family was essentially told nothing about some of the events that I've just told you about. They, they knew that he died on the job. They understood he had had a medical emergency. But they weren't told that, the, that there had been this inspection and that there had been these safety violations found. They weren't told about the fact that there's a federal investigation that still continues to this day. They weren't told, in other words, about the fact that there was, had been questions raised about how foreseeable this was and whether this could have been prevented. Uh, and in fact, the only reason we at the TIE learned about this is because of a whistleblower by the name of Lauren Stevens, who very bravely came forward. He actually resigned his own role in the union to spread the word about this. But unfortunately, the family you know, wasn't told by the union wasn't told by the union, by the company, or by the federal government about this investigation and about these questions. They found out about this through our reporting on the subject. Uh, and I think that it's fair to say that they felt extremely left out by this. And was there any reason given for that in that was the company or, or the federal investigation, they were waiting until perhaps they had finished the investigation or uh, they didn't want uh, to, to get the hopes up, I suppose, of the family for getting answers? Or did you get any sense that there was a reason why the family was left out? It's a question that I posed to all of the folks involved. Uh, Delta Port told me that, you know, in their words, it's not their protocol to tell people about their internal processes. The union, the International Longshore uh, Warehouse Union, Local 502, has not responded to my questions about why this happened, and, the, and nor has the federal government. Uh, I, I'd point out that in my experience covering workplace deaths at the TIE, it, it's fairly common in my experience that family members are kind of kept abreast of these investigations as they're happening. You know, think about it. If, if God forbid, if a loved one of ours were to pass away in a traffic accident or something where you know criminal, uh, you know, criminal foul play was suspected. We would expect authorities to keep us you know, appraised of what was happening in those cases, and that, that didn't happen here. I'll note as well that over the course of this investigation, I have spoken on and off record with current and former members of the union, and a couple have told me that they were specifically told to not speak to media about this case. Um, a couple also gave that reason as being that they didn't want to ruin or affect the family's chances of any kind of legal settlement in the future, but that seems somewhat dubious, given the fact that the family was never told about this situation. Well, and that was my next question. I know that uh, you haven't been able to get a lot from the union or the union isn't saying much about this. But if other employees, um, not only talking about this case, but have other employees or, or have you been able to find out, had there been other complaints or concerns raised specifically about elevators being broken? Many over a course of years, this was a persistent and constant problem at Delta Port. Uh, emergency responders I spoke to said that just a few weeks before Dan died, they had been phoned to Delta Port for a similar instance where some workers were trapped on this, this same crane uh, because of a problem with the elevator. Um, I got a copy of a hazard report from just a few weeks before Dan died where a worker, again, complained about this as a specific issue and specifically said, look, if someone has a medical emergency, how are we going to get them down safely? I even talked to a worker who a few years ago suffered a fall while he was on one of those cranes and injured his shoulder and leg. He wasn't able to walk, and by his own account, he basically had to crawl down 150 feet, 23 flights of stairs, and that was his only way of getting off this crane. Uh, it's something the union has been raising as a safety concern for years, and they claim that it has not been properly addressed. All right. Well, I know you are going to continue uh, looking into this and uh, and filing and writing about this. We'll have to leave it there for today, Zach. But again, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this story. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, BC is expanding the virtual bail statewide, or sorry, the virtual bail system. And this is a partnership with the provincial court, taking a look at what successes we have seen with virtual bail hearings and how this program can be expanded. And joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Nikki Sharma, BC's Attorney General. Attorney General, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for being on again. It's always nice to be here. How long have we been doing uh, virtual bail hearings? Uh, well, it started actually uh, kind of during the pandemic up north. And what we're uh, we're proud to say is now it's province-wide. So the technology is available in all jurisdictions in the province to have the virtual bail hearings. And it's part of our continual improvement and efficiencies of the justice system. So we can make sure the criminal justice is working effectively for British Columbians. And so the, the reason then for expanding it, so what are some of the benefits of it? So you can imagine some, if somebody has been um, been arrested for something and they need to have a bail hearing to determine if they're going to be held or released, that that has to happen in a very timely way to be effective. And so before virtual bail hearings, what happens um, sometimes often, especially up north, is they would interrupt criminal hearings that were happening to have these virtual bail hearings. So we set up a system where you can do that virtually so the the correction services is connected with the courtroom and the judge and anybody that needs to be present, the counsel. So you can have them remotely and you can do them in a very timely way and not interrupt the court process. So you can have your complicated criminal trials going on and still have your virtual bail. So it not only helps to make sure people are not displaced. Another thing that was happening, especially up north, is that if somebody had to travel from Uh, where they were being held to the court and they weren't accused, if they were released, they were often just released in that community, which was not their home community, no way of getting back, which could, could cause issues for the person. So this allows that not to happen. So there's so many efficiencies that we've found with virtual bail that we've invested in it to make sure it's available province-wide. And I really want to say that Chief Judge Gillespie of the Provincial Court has been a real strong advocate of it and, and helping to improve our system to make sure it works better for everybody. And can it be for any type of offense or any any kind of bail hearing? Uh, well, it's it's kind of in the hands of the court, but it can be for any bail hearing. It's set up to be available, all the technology and all the process available for that. So it um, it helps, I think, to keep communities safer, to keep everything running effectively. And it's one of the many things we're doing to invest in, in our systems to make them better. And do you have confidence in the technology in that uh, we know that in many cases technology is our friend, but things can often go <laughs> sideways and uh, turning it off and turning it back on again doesn't always work. Is the technology strong enough <laughs> and uh, yeah. in place for this? It's really actually very interesting. And sometimes, especially in more remote areas, when we didn't have the right technology, the courthouse was the one especially during COVID, that had the broadband connection, had everything, so we made sure that there was no disruptions. And I think we all went through a process um, during COVID where we stepped up our ability to use technology, and I think the courtrooms definitely were a part of that. Um, So, you know, I'm not going to say that there um, there aren't issues sometimes where people, but we have the right training, we have the right tech involved, where we can get them up and running, and they're running smoothly by and large um, with things to work out once in a while. Uh, the uh, one of the benefits that was listed about this as well was that it would reduce overnight remands in police cells. It would reduce travel as well for for prisoners, uh, for lawyers, for sheriffs. So is, is that something that that could then also would it deal with overcrowding or it would make it so there are those spaces and we don't maybe see those police cells packed with people that, that don't absolutely need to be there? Exactly. It's one of the key benefits. It's one of, it's, it's a very smart intervention that helps many things around it. And you just listed one of them. It's whether when we don't need to transport somebody to another community to do their bail hearing, it saves on the cost for the system. It saves on, um, it makes it more efficient. It helps make sure that the person gets their bail hearing quicker. They're not displaced from their community and supports if they need it. We don't need police transport or sheriff transport. There's a whole bunch of things that happen that make the system better once you've made that investment. Uh, there was one line in the, this release as well saying that the province is also continuing uh, to implement the Safer Communities Action Plan, uh, keeping those who commit repeat uh, violent offenses off the streets and to strengthen uh, and build safe, healthy communities. 
Are we seeing a difference there in that that is one of the, the main concerns we hear from people that we hear about the violent offenders who are out on the street, who, who are charged with offenses again? Are mm-hmm. we seeing actual changes there? Yeah, I think there's two key things that since I've become attorney general have changed. One is we have our repeat violent offender hubs that are operating in 12, 12 hubs across the province. And we have bail reform at the federal level. So that was just announced recently. We finally have tighter laws on the criminal code when it comes to keeping repeat violent offenders behind bars. And I think I've spoken about this with the with the hubs. What's happening is the crown prosecutors, the probation officers and the police officers are dealing with the most prolific offenders in, in their system, in their region and helping to make sure that um, we're, the system is very effective of keeping them off the streets if they need to be and breaking the cycle for that individual. So sometimes it's stories that I've heard where the person needs medication and when they're in prison, they get it. When they're released, they're, they're not. So tying up those, those um, loose ends and making sure that that person is uh, less of a harm to community. But also, if they need to be incarcerated, then you have better information before the court to say, look, here's the long line of things that this person has done. They're not safe to be on the streets. And it helps judges make decisions with all of that information. So there's a lot of really good things happening with that key investment. Um, when it was in place, uh, in, there was a similar program in place that was cut, um, I think, 12 years ago. And we, they saw a reduction of 40% in repeat violent offending. So in the four or five months that we've had this program up and running again, it's been showing results. And I'm happy to come on and talk more about what those results are in the future. All right. And, and one other question when we talk about uh, the virtual bail hearings. I know this this wasn't a, a bail hearing per se, but we did just have a very high profile case in Vancouver in BC of uh, Randall Hopley, who uh, people will remember, uh, walked away from his halfway house, cut off his ankle monitoring bracelet and was missing for a few days. Uh, if somebody is charged with a serious crime like that or is facing a bail hearing, what's to keep them from, from walking away from not attending, especially if it's a virtual hearing? Yeah, so um, they are still monitored in the virtual hearing. What changes is, is that if they are being held in remand, so they've been arrested, um, they need to show up at their hearing. There's a sheriff that can transport them or take them into a secure room where they have the hearing. And if they're, if they, the bail determination is that, no, you don't get released, you're in custody, it's actually easier because you're not, there's no huge transport to another area there's no, um, you know, there, there. It's easier to monitor in the situation of virtual bail than, than, um, than with a lot of transport and and other things that might be involved in actually having to take somebody, you know, sometimes far away for a court to a courtroom. So the virtual bail hearing, then, it's is it still taking place in a specific? It's still at the courthouse, or it's still under the supervision of sheriffs. Yeah, there's there's different rooms that are set up for them. So you can imagine in a correctional facility, um, there the sheriffs also are a part of it. But they're just they're not necessarily they're not at the same place. So you don't have to spend, put the time and effort to get everybody to the same place. You can keep them, um, you know, efficiently running where they are, the closest to the location that they're that that issue happened. So, but yeah, there still is the protections in place to keep that the person monitored. All right. All right. Well, uh, like you said, uh, we'd love to talk to you more about uh, safer communities. Uh, We'll do that at a later date. Uh, We're out of time this morning, but thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, always great to be on. Take care. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. 